This is the Things We Do podcast, a podcast about mental health, life, film, television, and all that jazzy stuff. Today, I've got my friend and special guest all the way in the UK, Tara Clark. Thank you, Tara, for joining me. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. It's it's an absolute pleasure because we were. Um, I was just thinking the other day before um, we we sort of like known each other through the medium of um, Instagram and Facebook for a while, but we were going to originally work together ages ago. Um, and then I think you were going to audition for something that I was going to do. And then that kind of like you had, to, you eventually just ran off to the UK. I think it was probably like ugh, 2019, I think. Mm-hmm. No, 20, 2018, I think. It was just, just before COVID. I, I got here right, right on Brexit, right on Brexit. Then oh, you still time the for COVID. <laughs> fun. Um, but no, and then I've always, ever since kind of been like a, an on uh, an onlooker like um which just being almost so a little bit of a um admirer of your art style and everything because I've loved your photography you. and stuff that you post on your Instagram and it's very like um it's a lot different to what other people post which I is why I like it versus like everyone posting holiday photos and it's much more like um film-esque thank you and and sl- slightly abstract <laughs> in um in some of the nature uh, which I think is kind of very comparatively, um, uh, you know, I, I'm, I don't use Instagram to kind of like post social stuff. I'm always like posting stuff about films or art much more than most people who seem to want to be like, here's a selfie of me and <laughs> go wild into the ether. But no, tell us, tell the audience a bit about yourself and who you are and what you do. Okay. Um, I'll, I'll just preface this by saying I, I'm, I find this question so terrifying, the who are you question. Um, it's why I could never do speed dating because um, <laughs> I just, you know, typical millennial, um, I have a number of strings to my bow. There are many facets to my personality and there are people who know me for a very specific thing who have no idea that I do other things and, you know, around it goes. Um, but I guess essentially, who am I? I am... Um, I'm an actor. I trained as an actor. Um, I'm a playwright, published playwright. I'm a producer, a voiceover artist, um, generally a realizer of creative ideas, I guess, if I had to sort of put one big umbrella over it all. Um, Mm. I spent most of my life in Sydney, Australia, um, a place called Mount Pritchard for those who are I guess, familiar with Sydney. Um, It's a little working class suburb kind of stuck between Cabramatta and Liverpool. Um, Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So it's, um, you know, when people say, where are you from? And I say Mount Pritchard. They say, where? I say Cabramatta. (laughs) Kind of. Um, And people generally know where that is. So it's southwestern Sydney. Um, I'm first generation Australian. My dad's a school teacher. My mom has always worked for, she's been a public servant. So at the moment she's in the Department of Roads. Um, And I don't, you know, I don't think I necessarily had a career in the arts written in my destiny. I think most of my friends and family probably expected that I'd grow up, get a real job, buy a house, pop out some kids. Um, (laughs) They're very disappointed. General general stuff. General, you know. General stuff that, you know. What you're meant to do with society, yeah, pop out the kids. Yeah, you know, have a successful life. Um, but instead I I decided at the very end of high school that, you know, this switch just went off in me and I decided to go to drama school. Um, and the college I went to, it didn't offer any kind of fee help and my parents weren't able to guarantor a loan. So um, I just worked my butt off for a year and I put my school fees away and um, 
yeah, then I moved out of home and took myself off to drama school. And I guess the rest is kind of history. Wow. So you've you've kind of like just always, I guess, been a bit of a, you know, a jack of all trades, kind of like someone who wanted to do a lot of things. Yeah. I And this is one of the aspects of my own personality, which I think, you know, it's a blessing and it's a curse. Um, I've always been very adept and I'm very quick to turn my hand to things and I'm so grateful for that confidence and competence. Um, but at the same time, it means that I... Um, I've never really had a specific vocational desire to do or be any particular thing. And I'm often envious of people who, you know, at the age of 15, just know they want to be a vet or that their heart is set in having children and raising you yeah. know, humans. And I've I've never felt a calling to any one particular thing. Um, so it's it's been a, brilliant in that it's given me this very varied life and um, and I know a lot of people, um, lots of very interesting people who um, I guess, you know, if I did follow a more conventional path, I would never have run into. So it's worked out well for me. Yeah. But it does frustrate me sometimes. Sometimes I wish, oh, f- bloody hell, would you just focus on one thing? Um, okay. <laughs> um, but that's it's like just... your brain's doing too much. Yeah. You know, and I don't know if it's, is it arrogance? Like, do I just feel this need to conquer everything? Or I think I'm just inquisitive and curious and I, and I like, I like to problem solve. It gives me a sense of, of calm in a world fraught with chaos, I guess, to be able to master something new and, you know, there's not much we can control, but what's within our control, I enjoy controlling. (laughs) Um, I think that's perfectly reasonable. That's like, um, kind of, I think what you can malleably touch or physically move you'll probably feel much more at home so I guess um like I'm very similar I've kind of like got that personality where it's like (laughs) if I could control something or like at least you know have an element of my hand Mm -hmm. um uh, in it whether it's technical or like um you know artistic or anything it's it's always kind of like I will have a sort of way of shaping it so yeah, I, I do know what you mean. I'm a bit of a control freak myself. But, you know, not with people, just with art. And, like, it's a very fine line. Yeah, look, life is art and art is life. And I think you have to live your life as though it is your greatest masterpiece. You know, uh, I'm sure somebody else has said that and I am, you know, stealing it from them. But, um, you know, life life I think is really short, but at the same time it's equally very long. And I can't, I couldn't see myself being satisfied with making choices about who I am and what I'm going to do at the age of 18 and then committing to that for the next 60 odd years. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's just not for me. And I'm, like I said, I'm envious of people for whom that works. Like that works really well for my dad. Um, he's a school teacher and throughout his time teaching, he's been at the same school for, gosh, probably almost 30 years now. And he's been offered the role of principal a number of times and he's turned it down. And every time he's turned it down, he said, I'm not an administrator. I am a teacher. I don't want to be, you know, um, I don't want to be a principal. I, I am. I am a teacher. And I think, gosh, I'm so jealous of that vocational confidence that you have like you are a teacher I would love I would love to be able to say I'm an actor that's it but um instead it's oh I'm an actor I'm a playwright no and I've done this and I've done that no I've you know you know um 
but I think it's a generational thing as well. You know, I think like our generation, we have side hustles on our side hustles, you know, <laughs> and, and, and part of that, like part of that is just economic, you know, gone are the days where like my parents bought a house back in the eighties on one salary. Like you couldn't do that now. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. You couldn't. That's do- like, that's, that's impressive. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, my dad, humble school teacher, I think it was 1980, gosh, 84. So it was before I was born, but they bought, my parents bought a house on one on, on his his salary, basically, they were able to get a yeah. mortgage and 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 buy a home. You couldn't do that now. I mean, like, so it's part of it's economically driven, um, but I think part of it's just access as well. And social media has a lot to do with that. Um, you know, there is yeah. there's this greatest greater expectation, I think, on on younger generations to to be doing more and and be creating more and um, developing more. But you know, I think it didn't it wouldn't matter what what time of history I was born, I could have been born, you know, a hundred years ago and I'd still be the way I am. It's just, it's just who I am. It's just what I guess, you know, you're, the ability now that we have is just what's in front of us. We have a lot more options, but I, I do agree that you probably wouldn't change what you do. You just find other ways to do it. I think it's one of those things that um, I remember acting was something I really wanted to get into. And I did that at drama school and then I was like, oh, I want to kind of learn how to do technical stuff so I understand what's involved behind the scenes. And then I just learned more about that. And then everything, um, I think YouTube's a great like thing for people if they want to learn a skill. Oh, for sure, YouTube, YouTube University. Yeah. I've got yeah. most of my degrees uh, from YouTube University. <laughs> <laughs> do you get a piece of paper and like sign it yourself? or? No, not quite, not quite. But, you know, it, you're so right. Like, it's true. There's a tutorial for everything. There is so much access to information and it's it's a blessing and it's a curse, um, you know. But I, I, I'm a big believer in um, figuring things out first and then asking someone second. And if there's ever anything that I don't know, I will immediately make a note and then I'll literally sit down for an hour and I'll Google all the things that I wish I knew that I didn't and find them on youtube or wikiow <laughs> it's great i mean i mean what what really impressed me was you were talking about like you know oh i got rid of the breaths on that recording that you sent me and i was like holy crap you <laughs> you get that like i was well, sitting there just going oh you understand what i'm talking about okay cool we're on the same page see that's that's been a necessity of of lockdown um so going into lockdown as a voiceover artist um you know, most, well, all of the voiceover I've had for the last year, I've done from home and I don't have a studio or a proper studio. I've got a makeshift studio, um, but I had to really learn how to do my own audio um, and I had to do it on the fly. So literally like recording, um, say, an audio book and being able to deep breath it <laughs> at the same bloody time, um, you know, it's a mammoth task. But if, if you know, if I hadn't had... Um, if I hadn't been able to learn that, I wouldn't have been able to work. And this was the thing, you know, it's one of the many things that have come out of COVID. I think people don't realize that not everybody has the conventional nine to five. Um, you know, a lot mm. of artists um, just couldn't do the thing that it is that they do. You know, like a lot of, yeah. I noticed I noticed a lot of theatre artists, you know, trying to get works put online and, you know, I'm not going to get on a soapbox about it, but I'm a purist when it comes to theatre. And I think, you know, we have a, fi- a film medium for film. Filming theatre for me just does not work. I have no interest in doing it. Um, but I, I believe in, you know, the artists need to be innovative um, 
But yeah, many artists just couldn't couldn't do their work, couldn't do their thing. So I was lucky in that, you know, something simple technical like debreathing a, a voiceover. Yeah. Um, compressing a voiceover, making it sound like it was done in a, you know, five star studio, I was able to learn. <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully. Which I which I I, I think it's also what, like I'm a huge audio nerd mm-hmm. and um, one of my favorite things is like audio books, audio plays. Um, there's something about going for a long walk and listening to an audio play and just hearing um, the amazing things that you can do in lockdown now when every actor is kind of like, uh, you know, has cushions next to them or like mattresses. You see all these behind the scenes photos where they're like literally in a crawl space underneath their stairs and that this makeshift studio so i think in terms of what you can execute now it's it's really impressive but i also do agree with you in terms of like theater and film and everything has their medium and everything has their place because i actually like i remember everyone was raving to me about hamilton being on disney plus and i just went i'm not going to watch it mm-hmm. straight up not going to watch it and everyone was like why haven't we watched it yet and i said i'm going to wait until i see it in theater like, I'm going to go to the theater and see it. Like, I don't want to just watch this. It's not going to be the same. Um, and that's kind of like the, the, I have a complete love for theater. I grew up with theater. I love musical theater. I am such a person who would always be like the, um, would love to be the MC of a theater. Like, I, as a kid, I wanted to own a theater. That was like my dream. Um, so, yeah, there's kind of this vibe. I do agree with you. There's just something about being in the theater space in this you know seeing the stage and seeing everything mm-hmm. uh, you know you're invested in it mm-hmm. in that like 90 minutes or two hour period um you're invested in that story so I, I think removing those things like it's you know people saying cinema's dead you can watch everything at home no i still go to the cinema people are still cinema will still live oh no people, and it never uh, i don't think it ever will yet. die i'm I, I say that with the utmost confidence i don't think it ever will die um, it can't. And I mean, I, like I said, I'm, I'm a purist. And one of the things that I'm always uh, looking at when no matter what kind of um, interaction I'm having with art, I'm always looking at the medium and the choice of medium and why the artist chose that medium. And I will, I'll sometimes walk away from a film that I know nothing about. And within the first two minutes, for example, in my heart or in my head, I know that this film was a book. I know I'm seeing a book on screen. And and the second I become conscious of that, I lose interest in the film and I want to go and find the book. Um, because you can feel that the medium is wrong for the story or the way the story is being told. And many times I'll go to the theater, for example, and I'll, I'll walk out feeling like, oh, I just had an, I just had an essay read to me on stage, you know, like that, this, this story or this message would have been conveyed better through yeah. a different medium. Uh, medium is really important. There is a reason that painters paint. There is a reason that theater makers make theater. There is a reason that, you know, when someone sits down to write a story, they question, is this a film? Is it a, is it a play? Is it a novel? Is it a novella? Is it an essay? What is this? Is it a poem? Um, and, and I think those choices are, are really important and I think they need to be, um, gosh, I'm going to say respected. I think respected is the wrong word. I'm looking for a different one, but they need to be honored, I guess, um, is what I'm saying. Um, yeah. but you're right. Like I, I agree with you. I'm, I'm not much for musical theater myself, but I have no interest. Like the national during the first lockdown here in, in London, the national put a lot of their, archives online for people to view and of course everyone's like oh you know streetcar named desire at the national and i've seen um in australia 
the national would often um record and um you could go to the cinema and see a national production um at pr- primarily you know those indie theaters like in Newtown like at Dendi or whatever um and yeah they're great but national has the resources to film them in a very filmic way um i have no interest in in theater productions and as an actor oh my goodness as an actor if anyone ever asks me oh hey we want to film this play are you okay with that my answer is always i'm sorry to be difficult but i'd really i really rather you wouldn't i don't want anybody watching me on stage through the camera it's not the same um yeah it's just not the same thing and you know let's talk about turning this play into a film let's make the film but you know this is a play and it's it's not it's not going to translate through the lens it's just not um but again i'm a purist many would disagree with me um, <laughs> i d- i don't think they would i don't think necessarily like they would i think it's just the you know when you say purist i think the thing about you know purist is it has negative connotations to it because you like it's, it makes you sound stubborn but i don't i you know after hearing you talk about it it doesn't make you sound stubborn at all it just kind of makes you appreciate the art but i think like putting it as an argument <laughs> probably to someone who had little next to no interest in like what medium it took you probably have a hard time arguing the point across <laughs> i guess i guess what i would have to say to them is everything i just said if i were to say that again or if you were to have that message uh, conveyed to you again would you rather have that written to you in an essay in essay format or would you rather read it as a poem an essay would make mm. far more sense you know it's not it's um yeah i i'm, I'm glad you understand where i'm coming from i i do because i i often think like that as well the um i'm of a very like um uh literal mind and kind of like but also very i grew up watching old black and white films and i grew up watching like um my mum used to say something she was like you know she was like you're you were born before your time um or you were um you're like you know the idea that i was meant to be born like the 20s and understand how you know film and theater worked to to the nth degree because i've always been fascinated with it and I think one of the things that made me appreciate, you know, like um, theater and film growing up was the fact that I watched all these black and white films that I saw how, like, I, I remember the first few films and I went, I'm watching a theater play, but film, uh-huh. because the first few films feel like a, you know, theater, because that was kind of like what they were used to. Mm-hmm. And then as actors got better at understanding the medium and the writers and everyone got better at understanding the medium, you could see the changes happening and seeing where it started to separate. And um, like, I think that's, you know, really the same with like, you know, watching, uh, we can probably all these like, you know, all these different ways. And I think there are times where you can kind of blend those mediums together, but sometimes they don't blend and I think it's a choice. Yeah, I agree. And I think your earlier example um, of like old old Hollywood, you know, when when film, like a lot of the early films that we're, we know of began as books or stage plays. Um, and, you know, you take a film like Arsenic and Old Lace, which I'm pretty sure was rehearsed as though it were a play and shot in one long continuous take. So the, the camera literally mm. just mo- moved around the stage, like it was on a stage and it literally just moved around on a dolly and caught all the action. So when you cut through a wall, you're literally cutting through the wall. Um, and that's that's masterful filmmaking. Um, 
and it achieves something. I think it definitely achieves something in its time. But I think if, if we're conscious of what we're doing and why we're doing it, there's no reason why you can't blend mediums. I'm not suggesting that, you know, you actually have to, like you have to keep everything in its box, but I think it has yeah. to be a conscious choice. And I think that's what's lacking often for me is that it's, it doesn't seem to be a conscious choice. If I don't, if I can't understand why, um, the story that I'm being told is being told in the medium that's chosen. That's where I, that's where I get that disconnect. Um, if I feel like I'm reading an essay, but I'm watching actors perform it, that's where I get the disconnect. Um, whereas I think, you know, Arsenic and Old Lace is a completely different story. Yeah. And I, and I agree with that as well, because I think, you know, how, you know, Alfred Hitchcock's probably like the great, another great example. I watched, um, I watched A Trouble with Harry recently, which is a great film, great film, but it's it's so clearly like has probably about three set pieces and it just, you know, it has the grassy knoll kind of where they find the body, at ha- which are there for about half an hour. And I actually didn't remember this when I originally watched the film because the first time I watched it, I must have been about 10 or 12. And I was like, oh, this film's really fast paced. It's really slow. I was like, there's not a lot other than just characters talking and it it's interesting but I felt like I was watching a, a really long play and I was like okay well if I watch this on the stage this should probably be a very interesting kind of like funny quirky comedy but um but it's beautifully shot because it's shot in the autumn weather but I, I definitely every time I watch Psycho I'm like no nah, that's a movie that is a um classic uh 1960s film and it, it works as a medium of a film. Mm-hmm. He is a director who's also had like a very interesting transitional period where clearly the films were made through, you know, the different stages of his career. But I think as well, like it's also interesting how like you take, say, Psycho, which, yes, absolutely brilliant film um, for its time. And then you look at the, 90, was it 1999 they remade Psycho shot for shot, line for line, yeah. exact exact replica with Vince Ford. <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't laugh. That was probably the worst casting decision ever made, Vince Vaughn for Aaron Bates. Um, <laughs> I know. Um, it's so weird. And I've watched that film and I'm like, no, it just doesn't work. Yeah, but, you know, audiences change. As much as the medium changes, audiences change with it. Um, and and I, I I don't think the remake worked as a as a film, sadly. No. No, and I agree with that. Yeah. I wholeheartedly agree with that. I think... This is like this goes into remakes and everything as well. Um, I think remakes nine times out of ten don't work mm-hmm. unless um, unless you're really you're not remaking it shot from shot or like style by style. You're remaking the entire story from scratch. Yeah, I think remakes they have to add something, don't they? Like they have to yeah contribute something to the life of the story. It can't just be a remake. Uh, what's the point? It's the same goes for sequels as well. Yeah, <laughs> like I think I think the way at the moment is a lot of sequels are holding on nostalgia. I grew up with a lot of like British, um, you know, sitcoms and everything, and now they've just kind of like keep bringing them back, and mm-hmm. um, because they were popular and there's still an audience around, and I'm like, that's great and everything, but also they're not. If you bring a show that was made in the 80s, like, I think the difference is, you know, some shows that were made in the 60s, which um, British staple um, would be Doctor Who 
still going today and still very much its own thing. It still changes with the audience and changes with the current technology and everything. So it's always evolving, but it's, you know, has its own fundamental um, stuff. But if you're going something like, you know, um, sitcoms, if you made Monty Python today, like you would not make it the way it was made. No, of course not. You wouldn't, no. you wouldn't have half the jokes in it that were told at the time because, you know, um, you couldn't get away with, as you know, the racist jokes. You couldn't get away with the sexist jokes. You couldn't get away with probably majority of its structure. Um, so there is a sense of like watching these things and appreciating them for their times, but also like how's that, you know, I guess also a follow-up question, how does that kind of make you think about mediums, like, you know, as they age? Oh, look, it, that is such a quagmire I think, you know, um, and I, I know that's not the question that you've asked, but it, it does bring to mind, yes. um, <laughs> it does, it does bring to mind cancel culture, um, which, yes. you know, the issues of, you know, like there are many shows I can think of that I watched as a child that I have very fond memories of that I would sit down to watch now as an adult and I would cringe just cringe at because the jokes are quite off color and they're just they're, they're just not like you, you know they wouldn't even um it, they wouldn't make it to air these days um yeah. and i think you know it's perhaps not for me to say what any person should be comfortable with or what they should be accepting of um but i do think you know there is i'm trying to find the best words to say this there is a need, I think, in society to accept that our standards of today perhaps are a far cry from what they were in the past, say 20 or 30 years ago. And, yeah. and to have intelligent discourse about that rather than cancelling it. Because my biggest fear with, you know, cancel culture particularly as it relates to the arts I mean look I'll use examples um more you know socio-political examples but like in the UK Black Lives Matter uh in 20, 2020 um there were issues of you know statues being defaced torn down thrown in rivers and when I say statues I mean you know of course like public property political uh, statues of um political political leaders who you know may have engaged in slave trade or x y and z and there is a yeah. there is a huge part of me that says actually you know what we shouldn't be celebrating these people these people um, on balance if you were to you know give them a character balance sheet they're not good guys um, and so my heart is with those people who felt strongly enough that they wanted to tear them down that's one thing yeah but then when it comes to cancel culture within the arts and cancelling or uh, you know refusing to air episodes of x y and z like gone with the wind when they did black history month i think it was on netflix and gone with the wind went was up and there was lots of controversy around gone with the wind because of obviously you know it's sent it it's set in um, antebellum america and um there's lots of racial yeah. undertones there no one had a problem with the fact that clark gable slaps scarlett o'hara and rapes her no one had an issue with that that really pissed me off that really annoyed me you know it, it did because like at the time there was lots of controversy around it yeah. like we shouldn't be airing it because of the way you know the the african-american characters are treated i'm like but yes he's a wife beater and a rapist as well can we talk about that for a second yeah. 
Like why, you know, and, and, and this is this is what I'm getting at. I want to talk about it. I want to have the discourse about it. I don't want to just take it off Netflix and pretend like it never happened. I want to have this conversation around why it's not okay um, and why we we are so concerned with certain aspects of it that aren't okay, yet we're very quick and happy to gloss over other aspects that are not okay. Um, so I know that's not the question you asked, Marty. <laughs> no, but it's a very it's a very good point that you raised, and it's an issue that I find a lot with um, probably just films in general as well. Just the the whole, you know, you're it's. It kind of goes to the problems with society as well, which is a um, great film I watched recently, which I recommend to everyone to watch, is Promising Young Woman. Oh, yes. And Carrie Mulligan, love her. Um, and I think my mother went to go and see it recently as well. And she was like, oh, it's, it was a very interesting film. Very full on, but very interesting. And I was like, it is interesting, like incredibly like, powerful. And Carrie Mulligan's like just she is amazing. I loved her and everything she's ever done. But I think that film just made me go, mm, yeah, there's so many things wrong with our society as well. And the same, like, you know, the same with most um, uh, of, uh, you know, uh, the um, what was it the Black Klansman mm-hmm. um, by, uh, uh, which was a great film as well. And I remember watching that with one of my friends who was um, Aboriginal. And he was, we were talking about it afterwards and he was just so angry at white people. And I was like, you know, let's talk about this. Let's not just kind of like gloss over this. Let's have a discussion because this will educate me. And also from your perspective, make me understand better. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I think it's like, the, this is the thing. Yeah, you're right. A lot of things don't get talked about. A lot of um uh, you know, like the whole court cases that came out where, you know, like um, who was it recently? Um, Craig McLaughlin. That's who I'm thinking of. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, he got he had all these like Rocky Horror Picture Show, you know, allegations against him, and you know, sexual misconduct, all this stuff, and he got off. And like, you know, none the wise. And the same with like, uh, you know, all these. I think that's also the thing that I every time I hear from friends and stuff, I've like heard these stories, I've heard that stories. I'm like, nothing is done. Also because of, you know, there's a sense of, like, corporation still exists, like, um, you know, pride, protective, like, stuff in the arts. And that's what frustrates me mm-hmm. a lot of the time. It's not, you know, it's cancel culture and then there's cancel culture and, like, you know, the, the, the way society handles some situations. Like, Promising Young Woman had a great example, which is halfway through the film, the, um, you know, uh, Carrie Mulligan's character is talking to this mother, and she, you know, and talking about the death of her friend and the rape allegation that she put forward. And she goes, "Oh yeah, that's really sad." Like, but then she's like, "Oh, your daughter is with, you know, these mm. frat boys," mm-hmm. and she suddenly goes, "Where the fuck's my daughter?" Mm-hmm. And it's the completely thing. If it's not happened to you, it's not a problem. And that's, I think, a huge problem that our society has. Absolutely, you know, and I and I think. Um in terms of how that relates to the arts, like if you talk about the Me Too movement, when when that all really blew up, when the Harvey Weinstein stories started coming out in the press, the only thing that shocked me was that anybody had the audacity to pretend to be shocked. Oh, yeah. Because it happens at every level, at every level, and on so many different levels as well. Um, 
And we as a society, the way we handle allegations like that in general, the way we handle the treatment of women uh, in general is abhorrent. It really is. And and I often find myself um, avoiding certain conversations with people about things like that because I, I just know where I feel like I know I'm perhaps not giving them benefit of the doubt. But, you know, I, when, when um, something awful happens to a woman and, you know, I, I know I know people who shrug it off and say, you know, that that is really, really awful, but gosh, what was she doing out so late at night? You know, like oh. the, the victim blaming that goes on. Um, it's just, it's abhorrent, but I, um, yeah, I'm with you a hundred percent. I'm with you a hundred percent. And I think, you know, the, the winds of change are slow. I do think the world is changing. I do. I don't think we're going to see the change that I would like to see in my lifetime. Um, I, no. I think it is slow, but, I think we're chipping away at it. I do. I think we're getting there. Um, but it, it will take time. <laughs> I hope so because it's like one of those things that, um, you know, I, I have – I grew up with a very non-gender specific kind of upbringing, which I think is a, like one of the things I keep telling my mother I'm so grateful for because my dad worked at home and my mum went to work. So it was the complete mm-hmm. opposite kind of – thing but that comprehension at school for me and my brother was a little bit strange like we were like oh isn't that what every family does like just has people do be them and what their role is like is just what they enjoy like it it was it was no comprehension to you had to stay in specific roles because neither of my brother brother or I were interested in sport Mm -hmm. like we kind of liked certain sports but we were like yeah like I wasn't very interested I was interested in art and culture and going off and watching films Mm -hmm. like it was a very kind of and the older I get the more I'm just like hey I'm me you know that you know I don't think I, th- I think we've got so, so much of an open space and a safe and healthy space for a lot of people to accept who they are and ha- how they identify and, you know, and everything. But I do think that a lot of our, you know, oh, you know, I want to, don't want to say it's just older people because it's not. Um, and a lot of people, um, depending on where you grow up, don't understand that or, you know, or just depending on what the culture is or what they see and how they like, you know, religion impacts them. Mm-hmm. There's there's so many different things that impact you and I guess like kind of cloud your view of the world. And I don't want to say that people's views are wrong, which probably sounds like I'm saying people's views are wrong. They're not wrong, but I think they're just, they're limited. They're, they're limited because they're not asking questions. They're kind of just happy with the barriers that they put up. Yeah, look, I mean, I think there's so much of, of who we are that is um, delivered to us externally. We're completely unconscious of it. And if you try to bring our attention to it, it's almost impossible. Um, but, you know, as an artist, I really, I relish all of that. I, I am pretty non-confrontational. I don't enjoy arguing with people, but I do like asking really hard questions. And I do like asking questions to which there might be no answer. And I kind of relish um, living in a world where, you know, people have these very varying um, opinions and beliefs about things uh, that make for really interesting discourse. You know, I don't want to live in a world where we all agree that Gone with the Wind should be taken down off Netflix because of X, Y, and Z. I want to live in a world where we all have very different opinions. I want us to all be respectful in our discussion. But, you know, I, I want to live in a world where we can have arguments about how should the pandemic be handled. Um, what's the point otherwise? 
you know um and what yeah. and what's the need for artists otherwise yeah it's it's interesting like I, I suddenly when all you said that i was like you and i are gonna get out along like a house on fire because <laughs> um i just i love asking questions and i think that's always why i enjoy very um uh kind of in, in, you know i love asking people questions that i'm like what would be something that's uncomfortable mm-hmm. for me to ask <laughs> but i know that's gonna get an interesting answer like it's not a big fuck you or anything it's just a I'm curious and I want to ask this question but I don't know how to go and approach to ask that question because I don't want you to get a like offended that someone's asked you that question there's so many I think it's education it's just I'm all about learning something new and broadening my perspective on the world yeah which you know it helps me write a lot of characters down <laughs> and develop a lot of characters so it it you know it's very useful yeah in terms of like creative knowledge absolutely is that how you like stem all your characters like you just start listening to people and you go oh I'm gonna write like 20 <laughs> people now um sometimes yeah sometimes I do I mean I'm uh, I'm a big people watcher you know I think a lot of actors and writers are people watchers um and I see, I see a lot of the people I know in um, the characters that I read. And often I find, this is a question that you always get asked as an actor when you go into an audition, is the director will say, what was it about the character that really spoke to you? <laughs> I always get asked this question and I think, you know, and I always, always come up with some kind of answer, but nine times out of 10, the real answer is, I saw less of myself in that person, but I saw a lot of the people I know in that person. And yeah. And I'm interested in plowing that field. You know, I I'm not so interested in playing characters who I feel are a lot like me. I'm more interested in playing characters who I feel are nothing like me. Um, you know, I like I like playing characters who get to yell and scream and be vile and disgusting because in my own life I'm very mild-mannered. I've never raised my voice at anybody, um, but I get to exercise and exorcise um, a lot of these aspects of, um, you know, humanity in these characters that are nothing like me. Um, but no, like I am, I'm a huge, I'm a huge watcher of people. And when I am writing, I may not sit down with the express intention of writing based on someone I know, but it always comes up. Like it always does. You yeah. you get to know your character, and you go, I yes, th- there is a moment here where where they're going to respond in the way that that person responded to me at that time. And again, it's problem solving. I think really part of it is you know me. I'm trying to problem solve um, the difficulties I've had in communicating with people in the past and trying to you know work it through in black and white on on paper or on laptop. Um, <laughs> to figure it all out you know why didn't we agree then why did they feel that way why did I feel the way I felt yeah it's sort of very therapeutic um in a kind of like melancholy and also <laughs> nice way yeah that's how I see it when I ever write something and I'm like I can write an argument that I want to have but might never have and that's always I think the <laughs> fun thing is like is getting it out and going oh yeah. That would be a conversation to myself. <laughs> yeah, I remember once having a conversation with a good friend of mine. She's a playwright. Her name's Alison Rook. And she's 
she's a brilliant playwright and we were talking once about you know writing who you know as opposed to what you know and I said to her Al like how do you get around that like if you're writing a story and you're writing a character like let's just say you're writing your mum and dad and the dysfunctions in their relationship and you know that when they read or see or you know when they come across what you've written they're going to be able to identify themselves in that writing and you know she said to me something that was really interesting she said firstly the average person doesn't have that deeper capacity for insight and you can put them right in front of themselves and they probably won't see it because you're filtering it through your own perspective you know so when let's just say I'm writing two people who are arguing they both think they're right so when they see the argument they see the other person as wrong that's it. And, and then she said, and failing that, what you do is you swap the genders. So you make the male character the mother and the female character the father, and then they definitely won't. And that's what I've done. If ever I've had any doubts, I'm like, oh gosh, what am I going to do? I don't want this person to think I'm writing them, but I know I've taken a lot of inspiration from them as a person. What can I do? Yeah. Worst comes to worst, flip the gender. Um, but there is an element of everybody I know in everything that I write. So, so far, no one's ever called me up and said, hey, we need to talk about that thing you wrote, Um, (laughs) which is good. I mean, that you're safe there. Uh, um, I mean, that's always kind of like the thing as well. Um, A lot of my characters tend to be based on either exes that I've had or friends that I've had or friends that I still do have. Um, and also like my first ever short film, which I made in high school was, um, based entirely off my dad's relationship with his mother. And, uh, I based the main character off, off, um, uh, my, uh, my dad and my mom, um, his partner off my mum. And I'm sure they're listening to the podcast and going, Oh, <laughs> um, now they've never realized this before. Um, and the, the mother who was considerably like uh, played by one of my friend's grandmothers uh, was based on my dad's relationship with his own mother. Yeah. It was just really interesting because it was one of those things that you just kind of didn't quite sort of like key into at the time, but every, every character they've ever made is always based on a, on a sort of an idea or a situation. Uh I think it's a, um, it's a healthy, it is a healthy way of like also interpreting, um, interpreting it. And I mean, like, um, most people do that with singing and songwriting as well. And, yeah. and you know, at, at any type of medium really yeah, uh, to kind of extrapolate. Yeah, I think so, you know. And I think, I mean, there have been times um, when my writing has gone out into the world and the response has been, oh, well, the, the writer clearly, you know, let's just say I wrote a young female character Um someone's made the assumption that it's autobiographical and that the opinions or the feelings expressed by that particular character must be my own. And that's always made me laugh, um, that people can't <laughs> separate the writer from the writing. Um, yeah. You know, but, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, what I need to do is just start writing men. And then people will... <laughs> I don't know if people will yeah. get confused, put a bit of a pump fake on them, but... Um, yeah, we'll figure that one out eventually. I, I think it's interesting that you raised that as well because, you know, until I started doing this uh, podcast, people had very little, like, ideas about myself. They didn't really know me. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of interesting The ever since doing this, a lot of people have learned more about me 
and kind of like going, oh, he's actually, you know, like he knows a lot, mm-hmm. you know, you know, because because I was quite quiet, I would keep to myself. But because I'm an, I'm uh, like I'm an introvert, so my best conversations are one-on-one or, or with a small group of um, people. So it tends to be like, you know, when people listen to the podcast, they go, actually, there are a lot, you know, this person knows a lot and knows what they're talking about and knows, has a deep understanding of stuff. But if you read my writing or you read um, the way I, the way I perform or anything like that, it's always down to comedy. It's always down to kind of like, um, you know, having fun and dramatic angles and stuff like that. So it's not really a def- it doesn't really define me mm-hmm. as, as it kind of is just an element of myself, but listening to me as a person, I think that's kind of also like, um, I kind of like people not entirely knowing who I am, you know, in a good way. Yeah, I agree. It's sort of like I have a pri- private like self to it as well. Yeah. I would, I would hate to be famous. Um, I think I could think of nothing worse <laughs> than being famous. <laughs> um, <laughs> I am I'm such a private person and I'll go as far as to say I think a lot of people um I think a lot of people who I know don't really know me as well as they could um yeah because you know we keep we keep a lot for ourselves and I think that's important I think that's important to do um but yeah the idea of of having that level of fame where where people think they know you well enough that they can talk about you as though they know you, you know, um, I just, I I would not be comfortable with, but you know, I mean, I'm, I'm an awful introvert. Um, and I think perhaps, (laughs) perhaps like yourself, you know, like you just, you learn ways to function in an extrovert's world, you know, would you, would you just say, you know, that you're just kind of, when you say poor, you just mean you'd, you prefer to be alone than with other people. (laughs) Um, I, I just, oh, I'm I'm just I'm a loner. I always have been. I've always been um very happy to be on my own doing things. I've and you know, I think it's in part because um I don't know, as a kid I always felt a little bit different to other kids. I don't know why. Not special, definitely not special, just different. Um mm. and I found it really hard to relate to other children in many ways. Um, and I guess I just carried that into adulthood and I just assumed that, oh, there's, you know, something functionally wrong with me. Um, but I think it's, you know, it's just the way my, my brain works. I, I like to, um, I like to, I like to listen. I like to watch, um, rather than contribute. I actually had a, I had a teacher at drama school who, um, on her report card. So at the end of the course, um, she filled out my feedback form and uh, I passed, of course I did well, I, you know, got a good grade, but, but her verbal feedback or her written feedback rather was Tara is too quiet yeah. to ever be an actor. Wow. Yeah. And I remember at the time thinking, screw you, but um, also <laughs> uh, like, why, why do we have this expectation that actors have to be the center of attention and these outgoing gregarious people? Um, I, th- I think there's a lot of strength in silence just quietly and and you know it was that particular class was one of the more um theoretical classes on the on the course it was uh, the history of theater you know um and you know when it came to exams I did well so I was clearly I was clearly engaged with the work but um yeah no she thought I was clearly just too quiet just too quiet to ever be an actor so (laughs) it's 
I just, yeah, you kind of make, it kind of makes me think because, you know, the whole point of acting is to be character. Well, it's like the whole point of acting is to be a character, but also the point of acting is also the best kind of actors know how to react. So if you keep talking, how do you know how to react to something? Well, and I look, I agree with you. And like in terms of like my performance style, I I tend toward a very withheld style of performance that just speaks to my taste. It's what I like and it's what I like in other actors. And I know, you know, some people will look at my work and think, wow, she's amazing. And then other people look at my work and think she's doing nothing. She's shit. Um, and that is the nature of what we do. It's totally subjective. But for me, for, for my taste and my style, I really appreciate somebody who can hold back and who can let me infer rather than them having to imply um, but you know, that's just me and it's not to everyone's taste, but, um, yeah, I, I kind of wear that as a badge of honor now too quiet to be an actor. Um, I, I love that. I'm gonna just, <laughs> I, if, if, you know, when you're old and you're kind of like, can that just be like something you request on your tombstone or whatever? You just be like, <laughs> that would be an amazing quote just to have on your grave. And someone will pass me like, holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, look, I mean, it's it was one of those things that, you know, um, I think at that age as well when you're at drama school and you're still trying to figure things out and, and your place in this huge world, it really did – It took like I took it to heart. I really did think, wow, okay, yeah. I'm, I'm never going to be able to do this. I'm too quiet. There's something fundamentally wrong with me. Um, but I don't know. If, if said to a, a different person, it may have had a completely different effect. Um, yeah. But clearly, I mean, I've never forgotten it and I never will forget it. And No. You know, so, <laughs> so clearly I, I, I cry myself to sleep every night thinking about it. But, uh, <laughs> but that's okay. That's all right. Right? It's like, fine. I mean, I mean the, clearly, though, you, you've done a fair amount and you've never stopped. So that teacher knows shit all. Uh, <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. I have a lot of respect for her. She's a brilliant actor and she's got a huge, huge and very impressive body of work. And you know what? I think if I look back at it now, I think she probably was just trying to light a fire under my bum in some way. Um, but yeah, it's something that's kind of got, it's gone through through life with me now. And, and even now I find that when I introduce myself to people and they say, what do you do? And I say, oh, well, you know, I'm an actor. I always follow that up by saying, but I'm like the least actory person, you know, because I have this <laughs> deep seated fear that everyone assumes that actors are just these obnoxious, loud people. I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm an actor, but I'm not an actor, but I'm an actor, but I don't worry. I'm not an actor. Trust me. Um, which is, which is totally erroneous. I mean, all of my friends are in the arts. All of my friends are writer, actors, directors, and the most beautiful people in the world but um i think my fear is that the layman thinks that all actors are just these conceited loud obnoxious people um yeah and we have our moments don't get me wrong i can be a real shit but still i mean not all the time <laughs> i mean i i think that's also the thing though is like you know as artists and as everything is no matter what you do you can have moments of arrogance you can have moments of like I know what I'm doing and I'm the best at it. But also it's good to be humble um, and also and and considerate. Like I think one of the, the interesting things is like I'm helping with a short film recently and I've, I've never had an ego to save my life. 
never ha- like had the ability to be like, I'm good at what I do. Um, I just do a lot of things and I enjoy it. And I remember one of my friends, she was like, you should come and help me with this short film. And then a director who like who directed a couple of plays was just asking me questions, like technical questions, and then agreeing with my decisions and stuff. And every time I meet someone new and they go, you're really good at what you do. And I'm like, am I? I had this moment where I was like, can I do this? Is this actually good? Because I don't have that, like, I've been doing this for like almost 10 years and I just don't have that part of me that goes, yeah, I'm great at this. I'm just like, oh, I guess I could help you and I know what I'm talking about. So I'll just, I'll help you and we'll make it happen. Mm. But there's, there's, there's no sense of ego where I have to be like, I stamp my feet and I know yeah. I'm top shit. Um, there's it's never been that with me. And, um, like it's funny because I know like I do photography my father has been saying to me for years he's like you should make this a living and I'm like should I though I've got so many things I want to do should I yeah Yeah. I feel you I mean there's I, I lately I've been thinking you know like find new ways to monetize your creativity um you know, and I do have many strings to my bow and many ways to earn a living, which is really great and I'm, I'm grateful for. Um, but, yeah, be, be ever being able to feel as though you're good enough to pursue any one thing professionally, especially when you look around you and, like, you know, particularly with social media, like my feed yeah. is full of photographers, actors, writers, directors, all kinds of creatives who are so impressive to me, like so impressive to me. It's like a constant reminder of how good I could be, (laughs) Um, which is, you know, I mean, I didn't get social media until just before I came to the UK. So the end of 2018, and I resisted it for years and years and years. And I would miss out on so many social events because, you know, the Facebook invite goes out and everyone's like, you didn't come to the party. I'm like, you didn't invite me. Like, but we did a Facebook event. I'm like, I'm not on Facebook. Um, But, you know, I got the Instagram because as an artist now, you have to use it. You have to use it as a vehicle for your creativity, uh, for your brand, for your... And And I have this love hate relationship with it it's more hate love um you know i i see i see the potential in it i see its value i see what it can do and what it does do for people um and you know i don't get me wrong particularly since i moved to the uk i've got a lot of work through instagram yeah like yeah like i've i've got you know people will message you through instagram saying hey i like i like your work let's chat and it's it's brilliant um but at the same time, every time I post another picture, I vomit in my mouth and then swallow it again. Um, it just, I feel really icky about it. I've never, um, I've never taken a selfie in my life. Like I'm not, um, I'm not comfortable with that part of myself. And I mean, I, yeah, I, I look at my feed and every time I post anything, like I have these general, um, like you were saying before, it can be quite abstract. <laughs> My, my yeah. Instagram feed, like I have these moments where I'm like, just post something random, just, you know, and that's what I do. So, you know, I try and keep it well, <laughs> I try and keep it balanced. I try and keep it on brand, but like there's not, there's a lot of pictures of me on there, but they're all professional. Like I don't put any selfies up there. I wouldn't even know yeah. how to take a good selfie. Like I wouldn't even know how to get one. Oh, like, really? Oh no. Like I wouldn't even know. Like how do, how do girls make themselves look so good when they take selfies? How do they do that? I don't know. 
Um, I've got no idea. I think it's like, you know, you've got like, I'm just looking at your Instagram at the moment um, because, you know, social media is easy. But um, it's like, yeah, you, I think it's also with, you know, you've got film references, you've got, um, uh, you know, uh, book references, you've got a cosplay of you as Harley Quinn, you know, different elements of different things. There's quotes, there's kind of all sorts of stuff on your Instagram. So it is, it's almost like looking at an art. Like art pieces, which, you know, it's like going to the Museum of Contemporary Art and just going, well, this is the exhibit, um, like, exhibit and have fun with it. Uh, I think that's the perfect way to sum it up, actually. Thank you. Well, look, I will, I will take that as a compliment because, you know, like, equally, I look, at it... other, I look at other people's feeds and, you know, there's actually are a work of art like they've got everything to scale and there's a color scheme that runs all through the feed and everything is beautifully curated and I think wow that is super fucking impressive and then this morning I woke up and I posted a picture of Carrie Fisher feeding Meryl Streep some chocolate cake because that's (laughs) just how I was feeling this morning and can I say when I when I saw it I was just like nice need that in my life that's a well thank you like I'm glad it enriched your day and that's what I'm hopeful for is that you know that these little these little posts just you know I don't know who, who needs to see this but here's some Carrie Fisher feeding some cake to Meryl Streep um but that just shows your character really <laughs> I think that just shows so much of you in the best way possible because clearly it shows your humor your interests your admiration and like just the absurdest of that picture as well, the absurdity of that picture just happening and and being caught. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I, I I don't I don't think there's a wrong way of tackling for you for social media because I feel like a lot of what your pictures represent is kind of like just the way, you know, almost a little bit like your personality. Just everything's a little bit here. The, everything's a little bit everywhere. You can, you have this sort of like collection of knowledge. That is kind of who I am. I'm a little bit here, but I'm also a little bit everywhere. Um, And I guess, yeah, that is kind of reflected. And you know what? To each their own. However it works for you, it works for you. Um, I feel so super intimidated by other people on, not people, usually, you know, beautiful young women on social media. Um, And I, like, I antagonize, not antagonize, I agonize over you know, every time I post a picture of myself because it just it just feels so artificial. But um, like I said, you know, Instagram in particular has been a great place to meet people in the UK and, and scrounge up some work in the UK. Um, and what I've been getting a lot of recently, I guess because I'm, you know, young female, is a lot of um, brands looking to do like what like they call collaborations. I see nothing collaborative about it. But like, hey, can we send you, you know, our sunglasses and you take pictures of yourself wearing our sunglasses and we'll give you free sunglasses or money or whatever. And I know a lot of actors and performers who do stuff like that. Like it's a great way to earn a bit of extra income. All you've got to do is take a couple of pictures and your followers might buy this product and then they use your coupon code and you get some money. And as a starving artist, I probably should jump on that. Um, But it just feels for me no judgment on anyone else. It just feels a bit inauthentic. And given that I don't take selfies, period, you know, to be able to take a selfie of me wearing someone's flip-flops, it just like, I just think it would look really out of place. I don't think anyone who follows me on Instagram would even buy it. Like they would just be like, what is this that you're doing? Um, 
and that's fine. I don't just don't think it works for me, which is frustrating. Yeah. Um, because it would be a great way to earn some extra cash, but. Um, but I think that makes you. I think that makes you true to yourself, which is yeah, I mean, much I so. more something to admire. I I think it does because it's like you know that's something to admire a lot more than, um, you know I'm I'm the same. I you know, I would. N- Probably never be like, hey, I want to join this. You know, I've been emailed a thousand times by, um, you know, like random companies being like, do you want to promote our stuff? And I'm like, no, no. I have no interest um, and because it's not, I don't want to sell something that's not, um, that's not me. I don't yeah. want my f- people who will watch me or listen to me, you know, see something that's fake because I'm all about real and, and what's, what's real. Yeah. And I, I totally hear that. And I feel very similarly. I just think like when you scale it up, it's no different to celebrities. Like how many actors and musicians do, you know, cosmetics like Maybelline, Lancome, like, et cetera. Um, and, you know, how many, you know, really talented artists, you know, endorse watches and alcohol and shoes and X, Y, and Z. And and they'll openly say, you know, we do these endorsements because it gives us the freedom to do more of the independent, less paid stuff that we want to be doing. Um, So there is an economy in doing it. I just wish sometimes I could economize more um, not no economize capitalize is the word I'm looking for yeah um, that I could capitalize more on um, what I'm doing in order to make it more economically viable it just doesn't just doesn't work for me but you know maybe one day you know if I if I were to become a really big actor and they approached someone approached me and said hey would you endorse this beauty brand or you know, this car brand or whatever it might be I might and I might take that money and then I might go and make my own film with it you know, and, um, yeah. Would that make you feel famous though, or would that? Well, see, this is the, this herein lies the problem, Marty. Is that in order to get to that point, you've got to be famous. I don't want to be famous. Um, so you're a bit of a um, you're a bit of a conundrum, is what, yeah, so- what I've discovered quite quickly. I've really set myself up to fail here. Um, yeah, no, look, <laughs> I think I think this is this is the this is the issue. You know. Um, and I think, but I do believe this is the case for a lot of actors. Like when I look at a lot of my friends who are actors, a lot of them are a bit that way inclined. Like they don't want to be the center of attention. They just want to do their work and go home. Um, and, you know, that's, that's who a lot of us are. I think it's only a very few of us who actually want to be in front of the camera 24 seven. Gosh, the amount oh. of pressure, like the amount of pressure on you, particularly as a woman, but like the amount of pressure on you to live that lifestyle. Uh, like I, I love that I can not put on any makeup, that I can not wash my hair for a week, that I can say something ridiculous and then not have it splashed all over, you know, the front pages of X, Y, and Z. I love that anonymity. I would never give that up. Um, no, I and just, I think, yeah. nor should you, um, you know, I guess, I guess kind of like also that's, makes me want to ask the question what is it like I guess also for you to be uh you know an actor a writer you know and a producer and especially as a woman kind of like how did you overcome because you're such an you know I already would describe you as a very um uh individual you know you're very much independent so there's no real kind of like you just you've got a lot of drive 
So how do you come out, 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 sort of try and take this kind of still male world? It is changing, but it's still very much like this male industry and this kind of like, um, but how are you, you know, how do you kind of, you know, make sure you're tackling it um, in the right, I guess the right way. I don't know if that's the correct way to say it though, because it, there's no, it's just a, it's a very odd kind of like thought. Mm. I mean, I, I, I think I know what you mean. I think like, um, I mean, at the end of the day, you've just got to do you, you know, and and I know that there are plenty of people who look at what I do and they'll be really inspired by it. And equally, there are plenty of people who look at what I do and they'll think I'm nuts or they'll not be impressed or they'll not like it. And that's going to be the case no matter what. So I think once you accept that and just give yourself permission to do the things that you want to do, um, you it's the first and best step you can take. Like I'm at a point with my work where I am very picky about what I will do and the work I will do. And if I get sent a script or if I get asked to audition for something or, you know, if I read the role and she's a typical two-dimensional woman who's written only as a mirror for the male character through which he is reflected or written purely as some kind of catalyst for his character arc, I just won't do it. I just won't because for me to keep doing what I'm doing is because it's hard what we do, you know, like it's a really hard Mm. life. And so for me to be able to keep doing what I'm doing, I have to enjoy what I'm doing. I have to love the work and I have no intention of, I mean, I, I could just go and do something else tomorrow. Like really at the end of the day, you know, I don't have to keep being an actor. I don't have to keep, um, keep slogging the way I do. So giving myself that permission to turn down work or to not work with people that I don't want to work with, not work on projects that I don't want to work on, um, is really quite liberating. And I think so far, I mean, there was a really huge period and in many ways, you know, it's not over. But as an actor, you know, you feel like you've got to take everything that comes your way because, you know, it might all dry up tomorrow and you won't get offered a single thing again. But I believe that actors are better defined by the roles they turn down than by the ones they actually do. And I always read, I find this, every time I watch a film, I read the trivia on IMDb and I just, it's like my favorite thing to do, but I'm always, yeah. I'm always so more excited to read that this role was turned down by these people before it was finally offered to Leonardo DiCaprio. I'm so interested to go, wow, Matthew McConaughey turned down that role. Like, good for him. I wonder why he turned it down. I wonder what other project he was hoping would come through in order for him to turn down the role of Jack in Titanic. That's brilliant. I want to be yeah. the actor who turns down the role because they're, they've got something else um, or they're looking looking in a different direction, you know. And that's really hard as an actor. It's really hard as an artist of any kind to turn down an opportunity because you're constantly made to feel as though this will be the last one. You'll never get another one again. If you don't take this one, you'll never work again. Yeah. Um, but no, I'm, I'm, I'm getting to that point and where I've got to that point where, you know, I read countless scripts a week. I read so many scripts a week. Actually, in fact, I have a general rule. If I'm not allowed to read a full script before auditioning, I won't audition for a project. Um, because nice. Yeah. Cause I need, I need to know in myself that if I'm going to, 
get the lines down because I'm a hardworking actor. Like I'm one of those nerd actors, excuse me, who likes to do the work. (laughs) So I never go in not knowing my lines. I go in with, you know, backups and offers, you know, like I do a lot of work and I'm not going to do that work if I can't be sure that the project that I'm putting myself out there for is one that I'm genuinely passionate about doing. I don't have time for that. Yeah. You know, um, and it really fr- it frustrates me sometimes because in this day and age, like you still get asked and it, look, it might be different if it's a big project and, you know, it's still under wraps and, you know, that's fine. That's, that's an exception. But when it's like independent or it's just paid at like a daily rate or, you know, minimum wage, which a lot of acting is, let's be honest, like a lot of stuff is just a daily rate. Um, yeah. If I get, if I get asked to do that kind of stuff and, and they say they won't send me the script or the script is only going to be made available to the actor once they're cast, I say respectfully, thank you very much. But um, for this opportunity, but I can't pursue it further at this point because I I need to know that this work I'm going to do for free, effectively, which is preparing to audition, is going to be worth my while. Yeah, and I think that's fair. You know, I think that's that's fair. And as a producer, I would never ask an actor to come in and audition without giving them a script, um, because you know you want. I I think as a producer, as a director, when you're creating your project, you want intelligent people to come on board, right? You want intelligent actors. You want them to be able to make intelligent decisions about the work. Um, There is no use, I think, as a producer or a director auditioning actors blind, you know, saying to an actor, I'm not going to give you the script. I'm just going to give you a side with maybe a little bit of context um, or not even give you the sides. Just, you know, I'm going to give you a monologue from a completely different project. Come in and do this audition for me. Oh, no. But it it happens. Like it happens a lot. And, and, you know, every director and every producer, like they've got their own processes. I get that. But for me, like I, yeah. I want the people in the room to show me their best work and I know that it's my responsibility to set them up to show me their best work. Um, and they're not going to do that if they don't have yeah. all the information. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess like as a woman in particular, I don't know if um, I think that attitude perhaps can be perceived as arrogant in the world in which we live. You know, who does she think she is? Um, I And I do feel like, you know, again, all of my close circle are, are in the arts and a lot of my friends are actors and I and I do feel that you know I've witnessed male actors uh behave in this way and it's kind of been celebrated as in like good for him whereas if I've said oh look I'm not going to audition if I can't see the script it's been perceived as who are you who do you think you are how dare you um I do think there is this unconscious bias still that exists and will exist for quite a long time um toward toward women uh, working in in the arts but um, you know like I said before life is short but it's also really long <laughs> and I don't have time yeah I don't have time for it you know um I, yeah it's it, it's like interesting that you raise all that as well because you know I I find it I think now having done quite a few projects and um you know not all of them have gone anywhere like some of them you know unfortunately due to COVID um, weren't made mm. um but you know with with the one thing that i always appreciate is is the respect like of the cast and crew you know enjoying how much they know is forefront they're like you're very giving of all the information here it is here's what's happening here's here's the entire script it's never a kind of like they don't ask Oh, you know, they're just going asking logistic questions, being like, how is this going to be achieved? Like, so everyone gets everything and they know the arcs 
of all the characters and they know everything. And I think I don't like not knowing. I'm one of those weird people who just goes, you know, like I know so many people who go to set and have never read the script and they go, oh, I've heard it for the first time. Oh. Um, and it's just kind of like the one thing that I know, like I, I, I started off also doing film editing and I remember every time I read a script and then I get the cut, like the director would send me the footage and then I'd cut it together and be like, oh, okay, this works and this, you know, this doesn't mm-hmm. read it um, and take it through. But I, I just knew that it was like if you hadn't read that script, you weren't really understanding the sequence. It's like you had to know how everything went together. Yeah, you do. You absolutely do. And I think, you know, really good actors anyway, uh, as much as they are emotive and, you know, they have this esoteric kind of almost alchemistic ability to just live and feel and be and create and whatever, really good actors are also technicians. And I want, like, as an actor, I want to know what's going on around me. I want to know what my frame is. I want to know what order we're shooting in because then the technician in me can optimize my process in order to um, work with with those other, you know, elements. So, for example, like, if, if I don't, like, I find nothing more frustrating, and this happens to me a lot, like, it it's surprising how much this happens, where I'm on set And no one has said a word to me. No one's told me what scene we're doing. No one's told me what the frame is. And then the director just says, okay, are we ready? Are we going for a take? I'm like, no, (laughs) you haven't told me what we're doing. Like, oh, 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 yeah, of course, of course. So we're going to do, we're doing this scene and we're going to do, I'm like, are we going from the top? You know, and and I shouldn't have to mine for information. Um, And I just, I think it's just, um, it's disappointing because like I am, like I feel like I'm I'm a technical resource. And if you, prime your technical resources they can achieve what you want them to really quickly and really efficiently you know we can get this in one take if i know what we're trying to get if i don't know what we're trying to get it's going to take much longer but um i think sometimes yeah actors are kind of othered though i think sometimes not so much in theater but on film sets they can kind of be put in this sort of um other other basket of like we don't really know what these people do therefore we don't know how to handle them um oh yeah you know so we'll just put them in a trailer somewhere and then when the time comes they'll just we'll just clap the clapper and they'll do their thing and that's how they work and that's not quite how we work it's it's so funny that you say that because um one of the worst ever experiences i've had on set was something i was directing it wasn't even a paid thing it was something I was directing purely for myself because I thought, oh, and I had sort of a friend recommended this DOP. I was like, oh, okay, you know, um, I'll bring them on board. And we kind of like, she just wouldn't appear to meetings. She wouldn't really be uh, very responsive. That's frustrating. And I remember getting, getting, getting to set and it took so long to set up the shots that we ended up filming nothing that was usable mm. the entire day. And I remember all the actors came up to me afterwards and said, no, that wasn't your fault. But I also just felt like, oh, God, I've just wasted all your time because, one, I feel like, one, I should have done better when it was completely out of my control. Like it was something that was completely out of my control because had I said to this person, work faster or work harder, they probably still wouldn't have. Mm. Like it was just one of those scenarios that it, you're relying on a cog that – needs to press record and is still worried about like changing small elements that really didn't were inconsequential in the end because they were just time wasting Mm. that I find it frustrating as well when you get to set and you try and hand as much information over but not everyone's sort of doing their roles 
Like some people just don't do their roles that they're kind of there to do. Yeah. And like communication on set, you know, like there's so many people and there's so many moving parts, you know, like it's, it's hard to communicate effectively physically on set. I'm a big believer in good pre-production um, and good communications in the lead up um, because I find that just cuts down a whole lot of, a whole lot of time on the day. Um, and you know, and I think it's why, like you find, um, some teams always just work together. Like some directors always work with the same actors and same DOPs. And, and I think it it just comes down to, they just communicate really well (laughs) and they feel comfortable doing it, Yeah, you know? Um, yeah. And that's, it's something like as an actor, I've always, I remember at drama school being told this before I graduated, you know, like you can be the most talented actor in the world, but if you're not good in the room, then you won't work. Um, you need to be good in the room. You need to, you yeah. need to be that person that the director says, you know what, they were so easy to work with. They were so much fun to work with. Let's just do that again. <laughs> Let's just have one less problem. And, that, yeah. and they'll usually take, or they'll often take the the actor who's good in the room um, or good on the floor, as we say in theatre, um, because you're spending this intense period of time together and um, you want to make that as stress-free as you possibly can, I think, anyway. Um there's nothing worse than being on set where things aren't going well and people aren't getting on and you're just stuck in the middle of it. You know, like I was on a set once where the director and the crew were having a lot of difficulty communicating with each other. And then they both, well, they all just kind of became a little bit belligerent and obstreperous and, you know, would deliberately ignore each other. And they just went out of their way, I guess, in a way to be totally awful to each other. But it resulted in the director just marching off set. And this was a location shoot in the middle of nowhere. And we'd, you know, driven, I think it was like six hours outside of Sydney. And we're in the middle of nowhere. And the director's just disappeared. And he disappeared for a whole day. Wow. Yeah, set production back a whole day. Because um, he just had to just had to walk off. Um, which, you know, like as an actor on set, you, that's just awkward as hell. And, you know, no matter how, no yeah. matter how good that film is, you know, you know that next time you get asked to work with that company again, you're going to say no. Because um, it's not about talent. It's about how, how good you are in the room or on the floor. Um, yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's um, you know, it's the nature of the beast, I guess. Film sets in particular are such, they can be such stressful environments. And, you know, particularly when you throw in a whole lot of ego, um it's, you know, it can be a recipe for disaster, but I've been really lucky. I think I've worked with some really beautiful people and I've had some really great experiences and, and I think that's why I keep doing what I do, you know, because it is such a joy yeah. really for the most part. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's great. And that's like, you know, I think that's kind of what you want to hold into mm-hmm. is also just kind of like the good joys of, you know, the madness that is art. Um because it is, as you say, it, it it's very emotionally taxing. It is very, um, you know, I think what you don't realize half the time, it's, you know, is that a lot of people sit in their, you know, own minds trying to conjure up ideas. And as an onlooker, it's consumed within five minutes. So, yeah. you know, it's a, it's a big thing to pull all these pieces of this, you know, as you um, say, puzzle together. Mm. And... I think it's very, you know, it's keeping that balance, that keeping that, uh, like, you know, the, the, your your mind and everything is sort of aligned so you kind of can just do the best you can even though, like, some people can be absolute asses around you 
you know, doing the best you can in a good situation or a shitty situation is, you know, what we're designed to do. Um, yeah. And, and make, I guess, make the human, like, understanding. Um, that sounds very poetic and uh, philosophical <laughs> more than a, what I said it like that. But I, I guess... Um, yeah, with with film, everything's a beast, and I think one of the you know every time I watch a film that's either been a shit set or something like that, and I watch it years later, I go, I don't hate the film. What I hate was the experience, or yeah. I didn't like the experience, but I don't hate yeah. the product that came out. Yeah, and I I think a lot of people um, find it hard to let go when they've had a really bad experience, which is you know you know whether it's a director walking off set or. Um, something having a yelling fit, you know, like set environments are stressful enough. And, you know, I don't think every time, I think it was like that great example of Tom Cruise blowing his head off at, um, uh, to, you know, techs, I think on set and he yelled at them because of COVID safety. They weren't far apart. Oh yeah. And I didn't think that, like, I thought the way he approached it wasn't great. Didn't agree with the way he approached it, but I thought the message behind what he was saying was correct. I think mm-hmm. he, you know, he was concerned about other people's jobs and safety and well-being, but I don't think the way he approached it was the correct way. But you know, those two people might go off and be like, "I had a really bad time on that set," you know. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I mean, like in general in life, I just take a, a no jerks policy to pretty much everything. Like I, I understand that you know people are emotional beings and that we can have good days and we have bad days. But um, you know, when when we're adults. Um, it's never acceptable to lose your shit at another person. It's just, it, it's regardless of the circumstances. Um, and I, I read an article recently that I absolutely loved. Um, Olivia Wilde, so she's an actor um, and she's oh, yes. been directing. I, yeah. I, love, I love her so much. Sorry, yeah. go on. No, she's, she's super cool. You know, she's been directing a lot more lately and, you know, I haven't seen um, – everything that she's done but what I have seen I've really enjoyed and you know she she's come out and just said like because I think she had to replace Shia LaBeouf on a recent project yes and she's come out and she's just said like she's got a no asshole policy and that's it and it doesn't matter who you are um I don't know what happened on set but for whatever reason she felt like his behavior was uh you know it, it wasn't in keeping with her no assholes policy so she's She's replaced him. And I think, good on you. You know, there does seem mm. to sometimes be this belief that there has to be this really strict hierarchy that's that's not um, earned, that it's kind of um, enforced. And I think in this article that I read about uh, Olivia Wilde and, and her no asshole policy, she said that when she was starting out as a director, um, somebody said to her, a very well-respected and experienced experienced director said to her that um whenever you start on a film uh like you have to get respect and the way you do that is to have three arguments a day like three big arguments that reinstate your power as the director and remind everybody who's in charge and you've got to be this this predator on set and she was like that's bullshit I'm not doing that that's not my mo um and that's not how it needs to be and I think good on you power to her like that's that's brilliant. I mean, and it, it's perhaps why we need more women working in film. Um, it's oh, just a, a, a here, different here to approach. That. Yeah, you know. I, I worked with a crew. I almost got to work with um, a crew that was like 90% women, mm-hmm. which because um, I were, 
I'm a big believer in, you know, I always say to people I'd prefer to have a female DOP. I'd prefer to have, um, you know, a female AD because I just feel more comfortable. As a, mm-hmm. a person, I find it much more calming to have someone who I relate to than having mm-hmm. a, like it's weird I don't like having guys tell me what to do I'm mm-hmm. fine with having you know um having full heart to heart conversations uh with women no questions mm-hmm. asked no problems with it very deep and meaningful but with guys I'm just like I don't know what the fuck you want and why you're being so argumentative or why mm-hmm. you're being such a jerk but you know, there's there's an A, I am much more easy to have a conversation with it. Um, and this is probably thanks to my mother because she's just <laughs> the one I went to and talked to. And she always mm. had a compassionate and logical way of thinking about things. And I think that was how I trained myself to was to always to have a very logical, um, uh, not being, not, you know, not yelling for the sake of yelling. Yeah. Oh, look, I agree. And I can, I'm not suggesting for a second that, you know, all women are brilliant communicators and perfect and that all men are terrible at it. That's not what I'm saying at all. But um, I do think, you know, that there are innate differences generally in the way that women operate, the way men operate. And there are daily experiences that women have that perhaps equip them a little bit better for handling problems as they arise, uh, for handling stress, uh, for handling interpersonal issues. And again, I'm not suggesting that men aren't equipped to do that, but I just think like in my experience, um, I've, so I have a theater company and it's, there's two artistic directors, myself and the other artistic director is, um, is male. And in the years that we've been working together, so we've made, uh, theater, we've made films together. I've, I've, become very um, acutely aware of how people respond to me compared to how they respond to him. Um, and he and I have very different energies generally. Like he's super lovely, don't get me wrong, but we have a very different energy about us. And I've noticed that there are certain things, certain problems that people will bring to me and there are certain things that they will take to him because there is just this expectation that a woman's going to handle this news differently to a man's going to handle it. Um, And I think, you know, that's not just isolated to our company. I think that's not even just isolated to our industry. It's just, you know, it's a societal issue. And it brings us back to that conversation really about gender and expectations on men and women. And, um, and, you know, in part, sometimes I think like there were, there were problems that were brought to me that should have been brought to him. And I thought you're bringing this to me because you think you might get yelled at if you bring it to him. Um, (laughs) because as a woman, I'm supposed to be demure and, um, understanding and patient, um, which, you know, I am, (laughs) but, um, (laughs) you know, I was talking to, if this is a bit off, off topic, but I was talking to someone the other day, um, his, uh, girlfriend is is pregnant and I just asked like oh have you do you know if it's a boy or a girl and he said oh no it's um we don't know but I'm hoping it's a girl um and he said because you know we plan on having at least one more and so if we have the girl first you know she'll help us with the little boy when we finally have the boy and I was like she's not even born yet and you're setting her up with this expectation that she's going to help you wow. raise <laughs> You know, but it's just this societal expectation that we have. You're like, oh, yeah, boys are harder to raise than girls. Girls are far more obedient and they're more helpful and they're cleaner and they're, you know, tidier. Um, So having... Uh, having, I would disagree with that statement entirely. (laughs) 
you know, it just seems to be this expectation that we have. Um, and, you know, the same happens for men as well. Like we do put expectations on them and, and around the way they'll um, behave in certain situations. And it's just not fair. Um, yeah. You know. I mean, I'm very uh, like, I remember I must have just gone home one day and my dad turned to me. I must have been wearing like this blue velvet jacket at the time. And he's just said, you're very David Bowie. <laughs> Such just a compliment. The way you are. I was like, that is the highest compliment you could ever give me because David Bowie, idol, love him. Yeah. Um, but, you know, my parents were such a big fan of David Bowie. And I remember, like, going and seeing um, uh, Rocket Band with, um, mm-hmm. and just, I remember, like, uh, crying. Like, I remember crying at the end of the film. And the only reason I was crying was uh, I had never told my parents that I was uh, a bisexual. I had never told them, like, anything about that. But I'd come from such an accepting family. Which I think was so bizarre not to tell them and be like, hey, you know, this is who I am. But it was so funny because when I did tell them and when they finally did, they were just like, yeah, okay, that's fine. Yeah. But I, I remember this, like, it's just this weird thing where I was like, I don't know why I was afraid because also my parents are so accepting. They've always been very much like, you be you, um, you know, paint your nails if you want to, date mm-hmm. whoever you want to, as long as you're happy. Um, yeah you know, dress however you want because they've never been phased by the fact of trying to ground me. And I know, so. like, this is the thing. It goes back to society problems and stuff. But I think with the way, you know, the stereotype of males are raised, Mm. they're trying to say we have to think a certain way or we have to be a certain way and the same for girls. And I just think that one of the best things that ever happened to me was I managed to become very close with a lot of female friends at a young age and I really kind of was probably the very few who um guys I knew you know now that I work predominantly with women and I take you know uh photos um of a lot of female friends and they just keep asking me to do more so it's it's a really nice comforting thing to not be considered this kind of like but I remember at high school it was very much you were just kind of I was considered the weird kid because I was interested in film and I wasn't interested in sport and I was like and I talked to girls and they were like why aren't you dating them that's weird that you're not dating them like are you gay like it was all these things and I just think back to it like that's the thing that I think is wrong with society that you have to like bully someone or you have to be a certain way to kind of make this weird equilibrium and it's bullshit Mm. like just be who you want to be I agree. Um, you know, like gender, much like time, much like money, you know, it's a societal construct that doesn't actually exist and it's only perpetuated because we all buy into it and we all agree to it. But, you know, acknowledgement of, of gender, particularly binary gender, has never helped. It doesn't help us as a society. It doesn't push us forward in any way. Um, and I am... I mean, I I, th- I think there will come a future where gender just doesn't exist. It, it's just not a thing. It, yeah. That's going to take a really long time. But, you know, I was much the same when I was young. Like I was um, often mistaken for a boy. Um, I had very short hair. I went to the barber, not the hairdresser. Um, I used to get around in my brother's basketball shorts, like very long shorts. I didn't shave my legs. I wore a Robbie Fowler, who was the striker for Liverpool FC, I wore his T-shirt constantly. And for years, I would I would use masking tape to tape my boobs down 
so that I just looked entirely flat chested. And in many ways, I think God's punishing me now because as an adult, I'm entirely flat chested. But um, there was a <laughs> there was a period like where I would go into public bathrooms and get yelled at for being a little pervert because I was in the ladies' room, and I'm like, well, I'm, I am a girl. Um, and you know, I there was a huge. Um, there was a really long period of time where, um, like I do remember at school, like I was the weird kid in many ways. Um, I wasn't interested in the things that kids were interested in, like particularly pop culture. Um, and, you know, I dressed funny and I went to an all girls school. So I stood out quite, I stood out like, like a sore thumb really. Um, yeah. and you know, and like, if you're different, you must, there must be something wrong with you. We need to other that, which is different. So yeah, I know exactly how how you feel and I and I feel like you know with all the conversations that we're having these days around pronouns and about um you know gender and um all these sorts of things like for me I've I'm I'm like gender or no a biological sex I'm female sure absolutely there's no doubt about that but in terms of gender I don't I, I don't feel particularly female. I don't feel like, I don't feel like a girl. I don't feel like a boy. It, it actually really just doesn't even enter my thinking at all. It's not part of yeah. my identifiers at all. Um, and I understand for some people for whom, you know, binary gender has kind of locked them out of this discussion for such a long time. It is really important for them to, to be able to choose their pronouns and, and, you know, decide how they want to be referred to. But like, for me, I just, if someone were to call me she, it's fine. If they were to call me he, I don't care. Call me they, doesn't bother me. Like it's not, it's for me, it's not something that's ever really, um, it's not ever been an identifier for me. Yeah. Um, you know, but I understand for a lot of people it really is. Yeah. I, and it's funny that you say that because that's how I identify as well. Like, and, and that's why, you know, like with everyone putting on Instagram at the moment, I just put all, all the pronouns you want to use under the sun. Um, he, she, or they. And I think that it's funny that we say that because uh, my partner even said uh, to me, it was very sweet. Uh, she just said, because uh, 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 we were talking about it and she was just going, um, um, my um, I think it was like non-gender specific um, was how she described it or like, you know, because she was trying not to label me as anything. And I was like, the fact that you're thinking about this and the fact that you're, you know, you're so open to these ideas and she's very open to all ideas. I think it's such a nice thing because it's such a refreshing thing where she's not, you know, you, when you meet people who don't put you into boxes and, it's a very like, and this society that we live in shouldn't be putting people into boxes. It shouldn't be like, mm-hmm. well, you know, I, th- I think that's where we go wrong. You're trying to categorize everyone. Yeah. I mean, it's like, to what end, you know, like I, I absolutely do believe like that. Yes. You know, use of pronouns and choice of pronouns is incredibly important because it gives visibility to people who have never had it before. And I think that's really important, but yeah. um, no, actually this isn't a, but that's a full stop new sentence. Um, <laughs> in terms of, in terms of gender, I don't understand why there are some people who seem bent on maintaining this notion that we have really invented you know, we have, and yeah. it, it may have come from a place of organic, um, 
it may, yeah, it may have grown organically, the way, you know, money organically evolved, the way the use of time organically evolved. But time doesn't exist. Our money doesn't exist. Gender doesn't exist. It's not a real thing. It's a concept that we all buy into by agreement. And that's it. And I do, I get frustrated when, again, you know, social media, I keep coming back to it. One of the many reasons I've avoided it. I think it's, you know, it's great that... um We've all got our diverse opinions on it. But, you know, I I do see people on social media saying things like, oh, you know, all these pronouns, like, you know, people just need to grow up or people just need to whatever. And I think, you know what, like if you feel so passionately about it, just, I don't know, ignore it. Yeah, no, I I, I 100% agree with you. And I think like, sorry, I could listen to you all day. It's like the most, I guess I'm just sitting in my apartment nodding enthusiastically at everything feel, you're saying. I feel like I'm not speaking very intelligently right now. I feel like I have a, a, a point that I'm trying to make, but I'm making it really badly. But um No, I get I get what you mean, no. Um you know, it 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 just makes me think of Coles, you know, like if you go to kind of like a shopping market or, you know, anything in your you know, you're you're picking stuff that we've labeled on a shelf. And, you know, there's 20 different types of muesli, but mm-hmm. at the end of the day, they're all wheat and they're all grains and they've just got different elements in it, but we don't know why they're priced differently. Yeah. It makes me think of that where the way we put society is always like through value, through this yeah. stupid value system. Yeah. Like not only do we not, we don't understand why they're all priced differently, but then we'll go to war over who's right and who's wrong about which one's better. You know, yeah. and like, <laughs> and that's where I, that's where I, I get particularly frustrated. Um, but, you know, I mean, it's an exciting time to be alive. I think there's a lot going on in the world and there's a lot um, that we have the power to, to change, um, which is really exciting. It's really exciting. And I think, you know, the future is, is bright. Um, and I'm, I'm glad some of these changes are happening within my lifetime. You know, I, I often wonder what, because I had a pretty miserable childhood, I think, because I was a miserable kid. But um, also, you know, for, for, for reasons like this, I wonder what it would have been like for me if I had been the 11-year-old Tara with the step haircut, with the boobs taped down in her Robbie Fowler t-shirt and her brother's basketball shorts, looking every bit the boy and wishing she was a boy because she didn't feel like a girl. I wonder what it would have been mm. like for her being 11 years old now. I think it would be very different. Yeah, absolutely. You know? Um, yeah. Yeah. Imagining growing up now and having so many opportunities. Well, not, not just opportunities, but like understanding, like so much information at your fingertips. Because I remember when like the internet, the dial-up internet days <laughs> and um, – and, and anyone under probably the age of like 20 won't understand what dial-up internet is. Um, but I think it's just one of the funnest things where, you know, you'd sit there and I remember mom screaming and be like, oh, I've got to use the phone. I'm like, yeah. oh, come on. I want a half an hour more. Um, and you'd have to get off the phone so she could use the phone and all that stuff. So the fact that we now can connect through our own phone devices to information that's shared on blogs, that's shared on everything, um, that if you have a question about your own identity or how you fit in in this world, someone else is probably feeling the same and That's you'll be it. able to c- 
connect yeah. with that person or at least read an, an opinion on it. Yeah. And like, and you can find people who are literally just at the end of your hand, really, like they're in your phone who are a lot more like you. Like a lot of the artists who I follow on Instagram who are people who, if I had known people like that existed when I was a kid, I think my trajectory would have been very different. I mean, I, I grew up in a like my parents are lovely. My family is wonderful, loving family, but a conservative family and Mm. working class conservative. Um, It never even occurred to me until I was in my final year at high school that I could be an actor. Like that wasn't even, I mean, my first high, because I changed high schools in year 11 and 12 to go to a performing arts high school. And my first high school didn't even have a music program. Like you couldn't take music as a subject. So. Wow. Yeah. Like you could do your math, sciences, economics, you know, commerce, those sorts of things. But, you know, we had an art class. There was a drama class, but there was no music. And when I changed schools for my HSC, my end of year exams, end of school exams, I did drama, visual arts, film, design, um, chemistry and ancient history. Oh, and English, because everybody wow. had to do English. But I would not have had those opportunities had I not changed schools. Um, and yeah, I think had had Instagram even just been around when I was in high school and I had I been aware that you can actually be an artist, <laughs> oh my God, oh, you yeah. can actually earn a living and you can live this avant-garde lifestyle and you don't have to um, – follow these conventional life paths that we all seem to agree to. I think it would have been, I would have hit the ground running a lot earlier, like a lot earlier, I think. Um, And so I'm really happy that, you know, young people these days have this kind of access. Um, With that access, I feel comes pressure, which is unfortunate. But, you know, I, I think, yeah, I remember it, you know, 15, 16, when I first started, acting and I would, you know, um, my agent would send me for these auditions and I would go online and I would have to map it out and I would write with it like on a piece of paper, the directions on the map. And I'd, you know, get on the bus, you know, get this bus to this place, walk to that place, get that train to that place. These days, like everything is just so accessible. Um, and Mm. there are so many websites where you can connect with other artists and do all kinds of great things and you can sell your work and not even sell your work. You can just post your work. Um, it's brilliant. Like it's absolutely brilliant. Um, but you know, it's, it's only been, it's only been, you know, it's within 10, 15 years, that amount of change has been astronomical and it's yeah, it's almost as, like we don't even notice it happening, but it's happened. And, um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's funny because I just think to, um, my dad and he's been a photographer for like, since he was probably in his, you know, mid twenties, you know, it's probably like when he started doing big stuff was in his thirties and he's photographed celebrities and, you know, did landscape photography for Lonely Planet and all this stuff. And he's had an interesting career, but I remember, you know, he's just seen through, you know, the film age and the digital age. And he's also had, you know, seen the birth of like the mobile phones. And I remember Mm. growing up and seeing his brick phone uh, with the like giant ass SIM card in it. And now to like the fact that he, he, you know, owns an iPhone 
my dad hated phones growing um, when I remember growing up. The only way you could contact him was through the landline at home. <laughs> and yeah. there was no way in hell he was going to hold an iPhone. And then suddenly my mother, through all amazing skills, has managed to get him to have a phone and a tablet. And now he has two electronic devices, knows how to use the YouTube channel on the TV. <laughs> and I just think, like... To the man in his 60s, I'm like, Dad, you know, you keep looking at... I remember being this young kid and you're being baffled by the TV and now you're using YouTube on the television like it's no tomorrow. Like, holy yeah. crap, you've come a long way. So, you know, in our lifetime, you know, when we get about that age, you know, who knows what's going to have happened. I know. I'm a bit worried about it, if I'm honest. I mean, I don't love technology um, and I've never been much for gadgets. I just don't have a huge interest in it. Um and I'm already aware that I'm going to suffer some future shock pretty soon. Like I'm going to wake up one day and the future will be here and I won't know how to use anything that I need to know how to use. And and I don't think it'll be that far away. You know, I think, I think you know, like whereas for us that would have been our parents when they hit 60. I think for me that'll be me when I hit 40. Like I just oh, I won't wow. know how to use my phone. Like I won't know how to do anything. And um, what what is a TikTok? <laughs> oh, I don't have TikTok. I literally was so many of my friends have TikTok and I'm like, I, I just don't know what it is and I don't no. want to know what it is. No, I, I don't have the I don't have the time or the wherewithal for it. But um yeah, but look, it took me this long to get onto social media at all. So I think I'm I think I'm doing pretty good. But um <laughs> <laughs> Oh my oh my lord. Um you, I, I think we will wrap things up, but I can I just say this has been a wonderful wonderful conversation to chat to you and yeah did so I've, I've really enjoyed it thank you for having me no it's been an absolute pleasure um and yeah just you know keep keep being you because that is why that is <laughs> if 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 like you know the world could hear more of this and the more of like just uh you know tara being tara then you know we're off to a great great oh, start it's it's a wonderful you. wonderful um but no this is the things we do podcast um if you want to check out more i'm on spotify and apple podcast but yeah listen to me next week uh chat to another guest and i'll see you all later bye bye